I know this is not necessarily the most fun thing to begin with, but I want you to think about the most recent conflict that you have had. I want you to think about uh, the, the, maybe an ongoing conflict with someone, or maybe it's really easy. It was just on the drive over here, and you're like, oh, well, that's really easy, in fact. Uh, maybe it is at work. Maybe it's at home. Maybe it's with friends. Maybe it's within the church. Maybe it is with family. Maybe kids or spouse or parents or extended family. Think about the conflicts that you have. We, we hate conflict, right? Nobody likes conflict. Even if you are, it doesn't matter if you're passive-aggressive or aggressive-aggressive, it, it doesn't matter. None of, us, none of us like conflict. Conflict is something that we experience, though, all the time. In big ways, there's big conflicts, right? Big blow-ups that happen, things that divide families, things that lead to not speaking anymore, things that get people fired, things that cause all sorts of drama. There's big conflicts. And then there's just the daily little things that happen over and over and over again. And sometimes those seem small, but they can add up and make it so that those relationships experience a bitterness or experience a coldness or experience a distance that begins to grow with all of the little conflicts that happen. Now, sometimes it's patterns that develop. You say, oh, we've had the same argument for the last 10 years, or this same thing happens over and over and over again. Whenever I get together with these people, whenever I get together with my brother, whenever I get together with my sister, whenever I get together with my parents, whenever I, my spouse and I talk about this, it's, we can get into kind of patterns that happen, ways of relating that sometimes we don't even recognize it anymore because it's just the way the relationship is. So we all have conflicts, and we don't want them. We don't want them in any of our relationships. And so think with me today, what if we could grow in that? What if we could grow in the way that we handle conflict with one another? What if we could decrease the amount of conflicts that happen? You might not think that that's possible. Maybe you've even given up hope that this is just kind of how it's going to be. But what if the, a, the conflict that you have, what if it could go away? What if it could actually be solved? What if relationships, some relationships could actually get reconciled and restored? Or, or what if we just knew better how to deal with conflict when it happened? We were better equipped and better prepared for it as it happened. What if, what if conflict could actually even deepen the relationships that we have? What if we knew how to handle conflict in such a way that when it did come up, it actually strengthened the relationships that we had it in? What if we had God's wisdom for conflict? God speaks to this. All over the Bible, God speaks to conflict. Sometimes we can think of God and there's sort of spiritual things and the things that God cares about. There's sort of miracles and parting the Red Sea and maybe even you know, just hell and heaven. There's kind of these big things, but the normal details of your life, the arguments that you have over, like, what is God, does he have anything to do with that? Proverbs is such a great book because it speaks so practically to so many things. What if we had God's wisdom for conflict? What would that do? How could that change our lives? And I can't obviously tell you every single thing the Bible says about conflict, but Proverbs today will give us some wisdom that will help us. And so let's, let's begin 
and ask this question. Why do we have to learn wisdom in conflict? It's such a basic thing. It's such a normal thing that maybe we don't need wisdom. We've kind of learned everything we need to learn. We kind of do what we need to do. Do we really need to hear God's wisdom or is it kind of just, you know, I'm I'm kind of managing just fine. My life's not necessarily falling apart. I'm, I'm okay. Why do we need God's wisdom? Why do we have to learn wisdom in conflict? Let me ask you this. When you think about conflict, what image comes to your mind? Maybe it's a person. If it is, don't whisper to the person next to you. It's you. That's what comes to my mind. Don't do that. But what, what, what image comes to your mind? What metaphor, what kind of picture do you think about when you think about conflict? Here's what, here's what Proverbs says that helps us see why it's so important, why it's so necessary that we learn God's wisdom. Here, here's what it says. To start a conflict is to release a flood. Stop the dispute before it breaks out. I think this is a great image for conflict. It's a flood, he says. Stop the dispute before it breaks out. At the time that this was written, and this is still true today, but at the time that this was written, especially, floods were one of the worst natural disasters that could happen. This is a a graph that I I found that said global deaths from disasters over uh, more than a century. And you can see that drought, this is all disasters, but this is droughts and floods are the two biggest things. And often droughts are caused by floods. So they're actually even paired together. But when this is written, to say that conflict is a flood isn't just, you know, your basement flooded and, oh no, this is so annoying, my... My pictures are wet and my, my super nice TV might get a little wet. It's not that. Floods are devastating. They kill millions of people. So to say conflict is a flood isn't it's a little annoyance that happens downstairs. It's to say this is tragic. This is powerful. My family was on a, a big road trip and one of the places we were supposed to go was Yellowstone, but I don't know if you saw the news, there was a giant flood a couple weeks ago and floods, even today, are very, very powerful. You can't do this kind of damage by yourself, but a flood can. A flood can carry away whole houses. A flood can destroy whole roads. So for Proverbs to say that conflict is like a flood, so stop it before it breaks out, is such a great image. You think about a flood, you think about momentum. It starts kind of small and gets big. Haven't you felt conflict like that? Like, where, how did we even get to this place? How did this even happen? It's, it grows, it has this momentum, it carries itself. You think about a flood and its destruction hurting other things in its path that aren't necessarily even related. Like I said, where a flood leads to a drought, it kind of adds multiple different effects. Where a flood takes out a road, which leads to us not being able to get into Yellowstone, which leads to, you know, I'm just kind of making this up now, but it leads to less revenue for the park system, which leads to people getting laid off, which leads to all all these different things, right? A flood leads to multiple different effects. If it takes out a crop, that leads to people not being able to feed their family, that leads to people dying, that leads to, it, it grows, right? So a flood is this image of momentum. It's an image of multiple effects that branch out. It's an image of just power and damage that can be caused. Some of you have felt this in conflicts that you've had. We say, this has affected everything. It's a conflict at work, but it's affecting my emotions at home. It's a conflict at home, 
but it's affecting my work performance. It's a conflict with this friend, but now it's creating how I view other relationships and I'm more tentative around them. So conflict is a flood. It's got a lot of power. It has a lot of momentum. It has a lot of effects that changes so many things. You, you, you know this, that if you've had conflict in your life, it, it's not isolated. It affects the quality of so much other stuff. You can't really just kind of put it in a bottle. That's the other thing about a flood. You can't, you can't put it back. Once it's released, you can't just say, get back in there. It's out. So some of us have felt the extreme pain of this. Maybe that has led to people you haven't talked to in years. I know there's people in my family that, that have had years and years and years of not speaking to each other. And sometimes it leads to divorce. Sometimes it leads to all sorts of awful things. Or it's just the daily things that we live in and experience. So oftentimes, because we know this, because we know that conflict is powerful, even if you've never read that verse, but even just intuitively, if we know the power of conflict, that might lead us to try to be avoidant of conflict. Just, I'm just going to avoid the whole thing. I don't even want to. But really, it hasn't been solved. It's just stirring inside of you. And sometimes then you, some blow up comes, and you're like, where did that even come from? But it's been stewing underneath. Sometimes we just try to then be people that appease everything. We just become kind of people pleasers. Yes, you're right. Yes, oh, I'm sorry. Oh, yes. And, and we try to manage conflict that way, but that doesn't, again, really solve it. Some of us are just, we, we handle, we don't like conflict, and so we actually engage in it to end it, but that doesn't work either. So all of this is to say, we need God's wisdom. What can God speak into our life to give us wisdom in conflict? And, and I have to tell you this, God wants to help you. That's the good news. Like the fact that God speaks into this means that God sees the conflicts that are happening in your life, whether those are big or those are daily things or they're patterns. God sees those things. The fact that God's word speaks into this means that God sees the conflict that you have and he wants to help. That's good news. He wants to speak to you. He wants to help you. So let's look at some wisdom that God gives us in conflict. Five different things that we will see, and really this first one is the core, which is this. In all of our conflict, we have to begin with God. That's the foundation. That's what everything else flows from. That's the thing that if you, if you remember anything, remember that we have to begin with God. A lot of times that's not where we start. Whatever conflict that you have right now, Whatever person, maybe it might even be helpful to think of a person, whatever person that there's a conflict with, we, we often begin with them. Well, they need to change this. They need to work on this. They need to stop doing this. They need to start doing this. If I asked you, hey, who are you in conflict with? Who have you had conflict with? And I said, what would fix it? Probably, it's really easy. You said, well, if they just change these things, the conflict would go away. Or maybe, for some of us, we even start with ourselves. Say, I need to change these things. If I could change this, if I could work on this, if I could do this different, then maybe the conflict would go away. But what Proverbs tells us is we must begin with God. 
And here's what Proverbs says in the book. It, it, begins, it says this in chapter 1, and then it says it in chapter 9. And the way Proverbs is structured, it kind of gives us these nine chapters of really intro. And that's kind of how I base my sermon philosophy. It gives us nine chapters of intro, and then it leads into kind of practical things that we do that are all based on that. And so it gives us this verse that doesn't directly speak to conflict, but it's saying that this sets up every other topic, which is this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding, which is saying before I talk to you about work, before I talk to you about money, before I talk to you about marriage, before I talk to you about friendship, before I talk to you about conflict, before I talk to you about any of this stuff, the beginning, the foundation where all of wisdom starts is I have to know God. I have to fear, which doesn't mean to be terrified of, but it means to respect, to have reverence, to be in awe. It means I know him. I know who he is. I know what he says. That is the beginning of any wisdom in your conflict, which means we begin with God. It means whatever conflict you have, you don't begin with yourself. You don't begin with them. You don't begin with the issue. You don't begin with just trying to solve how do I work on my communication or how do I do this? You begin with, there's a third person in this conflict. It's not just you and your spouse. It's not just you and your kids. It's not just you and your boss. It's not just you and your coworkers. There's another person that you need in order to have wisdom. What if in whatever conflict that we experience, we said, I'm gonna start there's no way for me to be wise with this conflict unless I start with God. Which means that we come to him and we speak to him and we say, God, I submit to you. I, I, I submit this situation to you. It means we come to him and say, God, I want to learn from you. I want to listen to you. It means we come to him and we say, I want your will to be done here. I don't just want my rights. I don't just want things to get better for me. I want your will to be done here. It means that we seek to say, who is God? And how does that relate to how I'm treating other people? Who has God been to me? What has God done for me? How does that change how I look at this situation? It means all of those things. It means you will have no wisdom in your conflict. You will have no wisdom. It doesn't matter how many conflict books, blogs, Googling, friends you talk to, advice that you get, therapists you speak with, you will have no wisdom in your conflict if it doesn't begin with this. This is the beginning. This is the foundation. You have to know him, listen to him, experience him. It also means when we talk about beginning with God, it also means that it's not just sin. Our conflict isn't just sin against other people. It's not just kind of a, a, a horizontal thing. It always involves him, which is why it says this later in Proverbs, or earlier in Proverbs, it says, there's six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. All of these things are related to our relational problems. This final one, specifically speaking to conflict in our relationships, but it says God hates them. See, 
it, we might sometimes look at our conflict and say, yeah, you know, I'm fine with God, but, but I've got these conflicts that are happening here. But God says, no, this directly involves me, which means if we begin with God, it also means we begin with confessing to God. Even the problems we have with one another, we say, God, I'm sorry the way I'm treating this person. God, I'm sorry the way that I've ignored you in this conflict. God, I'm sorry that I haven't brought this to you. God, I'm sorry that I've been just thinking about my rights and my situation and my uh, kind of offenses, but I haven't actually surrendered to you or sought your will in this or desire to see how you relate to them or how you see them. It means that we recognize God is directly involved. So, we want wisdom in our conflict. That's the beginning place. We have to begin with God. When you start there, it changes your perspective. When you start there, it reorients us. Think about if you did that in any conflict that you have right now. It changes how we view it. it changes how we begin to treat the other person, think of the other person, what we want, what our goals are, all of it. This is the foundation, and it leads to the other things that I'll say, but that's the beginning piece. The second thing is to, and this probably sounds very Christian and maybe even obvious, but hopefully Proverbs will help us see how it specifically plays out, but is that we give grace. Often our posture, when there is sin around us, things that people do, things that we don't like, when things are around us, oftentimes our posture is to magnify people's sin. Proverbs says, a fool's displeasure is known at once, but whoever ignores an insult is sensible. A fool's displeasure is known at once. What that means is that oftentimes we are so easily offended by things that happen around us. We're so easily offended and we want to make it known. A fool's displeasure, meaning we get displeased easily. We are very offendable people, almost surprised that the people around us should be sinful. We get very displeased very quickly, which causes us also, if we have this posture, to magnify other people's sins. It means we see other people's sins as very big because we are so easily displeased. Listen, if everything displeases you, then you will look at other people as always in the wrong. How could they say this? How could they do this? How could they think this? How could they treat me this way? That we always kind of just live offended, surprised that people could say a wrong word to us, not think about us, drive poorly. <laughs> there we go. That was the one that you needed to hear. That was the prophecy that came, you know. We, we get so easily displeased. And oftentimes what that leads to is that we crush people with our expectations. We want them to basically be perfect and never sin against us. Now, I'm not saying sin is good and just excuse it, but I'm saying, look, I guarantee you the people around you are going to sin against you. I guarantee you your boss, your coworkers, your friends, your family, they're all going to sin against you. It's, one, it's easy to say, look, we all say this and it's easy to say, nobody's perfect. But to, to put different subpoints underneath that eventually is going to say, everyone's going to sin against me. Okay. So then we shouldn't be so easily displeased, so quick to be offended. What happens is we crush people with expecting that they would never offend us, never sin against us, never do anything displeasing to us. 
never speak the wrong way, look the wrong way. When we live this way also, as Proverbs says, a fool's displeasure is known at once. What also happens is it's just really easy for us to find faults in other people. It's really easy for us to be judgmental of other people. Now, I can't go into a whole thing, but there's a good kind of judging that the Bible tells us to do, which is to call right, right, wrong, wrong. But there's a bad kind of judging where we assume what's in people's hearts. You ever gotten a text and said, I can't believe they would say this because you're reading tone into it? I guarantee you it was passive-aggressive people that invented emojis because they wanted to say, I'm going to be very clear in how I communicate. Smiley face, smiley face, cry eyes, birthday hat, sparklers. Look, I'm happy. I'm not meaning anything upset or bad. You ever gotten a text or an email and you said, oh, I, I know that what they meant. Look, can you believe what they said? We read tone into it. We read meaning into it. We read, you know, that old song, I bet you think this song is about you. We think, oh, you said that. They really mean that this is about me. I bet the reason they said that. We don't know. We assume motives in people all the time. When we live with this kind of judgmental spirit where a fool's displeasure is known at once, when we live with that kind of mentality, we're always seeing the wrong in people, always assuming that they meant this, said this, thought this. I remember when I was um, in eighth grade, and I had, I, I had awful vision. I could barely see it all. Um, and I remember walking through the halls, as, as, as you do, and one time this person came up to me and said, do you know that so-and-so is really mad at you? I was like, no, this is very eighth grade, right? Do you, do you know so-and-so is very mad at me? Why are they mad at me? Because they say you walk by them all the time and they, they wave at you and say hi and you just totally walk by and ignore them. And I was like, I never saw them do that because I was too embarrassed to wear my glasses. So I had a problem, but it was I was afraid of what people thought of how I looked, not that I was just ignoring the person waving and just going, and just kept going. I couldn't see them. But that has stuck in my mind because it was easy for that person to assume, here's the reason that you're not saying hi to me. Here's the reason that you are a rude person. You're an arrogant person. You're stuck up. You, you, uh, you know, are so awful that you won't wave to me. I'm standing here waving and you just go on by. It's easy for us to do that all the time, to live with suspicion. To One author I've read talks about there's gaps often that come up in our relationships where we're not sure what's going on from what, someone, what we expect of someone and what they do, and there's a gap. Even something as simple as someone didn't show up on time. What do we fill in with that gap? What do we fill in when someone doesn't do what we think they should do or what they said they were going to do or we thought they should do? What do we fill in in that gap? And when we put suspicion in there, oh, the reason they did it is because of this. The reason they did it, that is completely violating a principle of love and grace and charity. And instead, we, we fill that gap with judgment. This is what Proverbs is talking about, which the opposite of all that is a contrary... Oh, sorry, actually, I'm not at the opposite point. What I was going to say is this. Oftentimes, what that then leads to if we do that, is it spreads out into conflict also. And it leads to gossip most often. A contrary person spreads conflict. 
A gossip separates close friends. If you always have this displeasure with people, if you always see the faults in people, if you always are filling the gap with suspicion, what usually happens is you don't contain that. You tell other people. And that leads, it's, it's like a flood. It's a flood that begins to separate people. Maybe there's friendships that you have had that have ended and you think it's because someone wronged you, but it's actually because someone gossiped that led to that. It says this about gossip. It says, without wood, fire goes out, and without a gossip, conflict dies down. A gossip continues the conflict. It's like pouring gas on a fire. They keep it growing. A lot of our conflicts might just die and end out, but gossip increases it. And that's true when someone gossips about someone else, but it's true when we gossip about someone because it just kind of keeps our heart going on a situation that could have just died out. And the hard part about gossip is that a gossip's words are like choice food that goes down to one's innermost being. Tastes so good to gossip. That's true, right? It's part of why we love reality TV shows, why we love reading headlines about celebrities' lives that you don't know anything about, but you want to read why they broke up with this person or why Justin's still talking to Selena or why you want to know. And it tastes good. Sometimes it even tastes Christian. Like, ooh, I'll pray for that person. Yeah, give me more information so I can pray. It'll add to my list of their prayers. Yes, oh, give me more so I can intercede. Instead, all of that, instead, I said the second principle that Proverbs gives to us is that we need to have grace. So the opposite of all those things is whoever conceals an offense promotes love. But whoever gossips about it separates close friends, promotes love or separates friends. Whoever conceals an offense promotes love. Think about how this is the opposite. There is us having offenses right at our eye level all the time. We're displeased easily. We see faults easily. We make judgments easily. We assume the worst easily. It's right there. But Proverbs is saying, actually, wisdom is this. Conceal it. Now, that doesn't mean you kind of hide injustices that are done, but it means we have a posture of grace that says, I don't need to have that front and center in my mind. I'm actually doing the opposite. I'm promoting love. I'm pushing love to the top of my vision. That's what a promo is, right? When you promote something, you push that to the top. If you ever uh, are going to go to a music festival or something, and there's Jack the banjo player, he's at the very bottom. And front, at the very top, the promo is going to be whoever the most famous band is. Since I said banjo, all I can think about is Mumford and Sons. But I know that's, you know, they're, they're on the oldie station now. But it's, so it's whoever's the, the top thing is going to be the promotion. That's what this is saying. To promote love. What if in our relationships we said, you know what I'm going to bring to the top of my vision? You know what I'm going to keep there? What I'm looking at? I'm going to conceal offenses done to me. And instead, I'm going, to look at, I'm going to look through the lens of love. I'm going to think about loving the other person. I'm going to look at them with a posture of grace and love and understanding. That's what I'm going to promote. That's what I'm going to keep at the top. The sins might be there. I might see them, but they're way down with Jack the banjo player. I'm promoting love. When we do that, it transforms how we look at people. It transforms even the offenses that we feel that we experience. What if we looked at people with grace? 
What if that was our heart and our posture? What that means, I love, there's an author named Ken Sandy, and he has this quote. He's the creator of a a ministry called Peacemakers and another one called Relational Wisdom. And he says this, making a charitable judgment means that out of love for God, you strive to believe the best about others until you have, this word's important, facts to prove otherwise. Not just your opinion. Not just, I saw the text, but you have facts to prove otherwise. In other words, if you can reasonably interpret the facts in two possible ways, God calls you to embrace the positive interpretation over the negative, or at least to postpone making any judgment at all until you can acquire conclusive facts. Paul teaches that love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. In other words, love always looks for reasonable ways to trust others, to hope that they are doing what is right, and to interpret their words and actions in a way that protects their reputation and credibility. This is the essence of charitable judgment. This is the essence of promoting love. What if we did that? What if other people did that about you? What if we did that in our marriages, with our kids, in our friendships, with our community groups? That would change a lot of things. Some of you have been really hurt by people not doing this. What if we did this? Proverbs actually speaks this same thing over and over and over again. I'll just give you a couple more where it says, we already looked at this one, whoever conceals an offense promotes love. Then it says a person's insight gives him patience. His virtue is to overlook an offense. Hatred stirs up conflict, but love covers all offenses. It speaks to this multiple times to say, you know what our primary posture should be as we see people kind of offending us? Or It is, I'm ignoring it with grace. I'm not saying you ignore abuse and you ignore injustice. and you, I'm, not, I'm not saying that that's how, how you handle every situation. But there should be a general gracious posture that is so different from how we often live which is looking for the faults, interpreting the faults, interpreting the facts negatively. Even sometimes we, in a Christian way, think, I just, I'm just going to be real. I'm just going to speak the truth. But you don't have to actually address every single sin that you see or that you feel has been done to you. You can overlook it. That's actually wisdom, Proverbs says. And if we did that, probably 90% of our conflicts would go away. If we just said, I'm going to just adopt a posture that love covers offenses, love assumes the best, I'm going to promote love, probably most of our conflict would go away. Third, sometimes we just have to disengage. Sometimes we just have to disengage. Uh, At times, we can think that we have to win each battle that there is. Sometimes we... In the spirit of maybe even, I don't want to give up on this person, we just keep going. Sometimes it's that we just, we know, I, if I just say the right things, I could convince them. If I could just have one more conversation, if I could just have one more, I know I could change them. I know I could. Sometimes we just have to disengage. Sometimes we just have to say, enough is enough. It's often wise to actually let it go. Proverbs says, drive out a mocker and conflict goes to. Then quarreling in dishonor 
will cease. Sometimes it's not a 50-50 thing. Sometimes it's not you can convince the person. They are a mocker. They are internally someone that is going to continue to create quarreling and dishonor. They will keep doing that no matter how great your arguments are, no matter how much your love is. They will keep doing this. And so sometimes it's just you got to let it go and disengage. It says, as charcoal for embers and wood for fire, so is a quarrelsome person for kindling strife. They will just keep doing it. They will keep it going. Or if a wise person goes to court with a fool, there will be ranting and raving, but no resolution. There's going to be a lot of words said. There's going to be a lot of drama. It'll be an exciting, you know, Judge Judy episode, but no resolution. Sometimes, and maybe some of you need to hear this with somebody, you just need to disengage. This can be true in a moment with a particular uh, person, even a spouse, that sometimes the best thing to do, and I'm not saying you divorce them, I'm saying sometimes the best thing to do is just say, okay, they need some time to cool down. They need some time, instead of just beating a dead horse and continuing to go and thinking, if we keep arguing, the problem will get solved. Uh, maybe not. Sometimes you just need to disengage, step back. Sometimes you need to do that fully in a relationship, like this is saying as well. Sometimes the wisdom that God wants to give to us is just to disengage, to just end it. I'm going to skip uh, a slide I had here and just go to this next one. The fourth principle that Proverbs gives to us of how to handle wisdom in our conflict is to seek reconciliation, to make peace. It says, honor belongs to the person who ends a dispute. But any fool can get himself into a quarrel. Think about that. Such a wise little statement. Proverbs is filled with just some of these kind of pithy statements. Any fool can start an argument. You don't have to read a book of how to start an argument, right? No one has to say, hmm, how do I create drama? Anybody can do that. Any, you could, if, you, if I made it like your homework was go start an argument, everybody could be done before they walked out the door. I'm not going to start an argument. How could you tell me to do that? Right? It's so easy to start an argument. Any fool can do that. But honor belongs to the person who ends it. Honor belongs, and that's not like a, I'm going to end this. That's not, it's not like, this isn't sort of like a, a cowboy verse. Honor belongs to the one that ends the dispute. It's saying, I'm going to make peace. I'm going to seek reconciliation. I'm going to build bridges. It's saying that it's easy to start something but it's wise and honorable to say, how can I make peace? And let me ask you, is that your desire? In whatever conflict you have, or in conflicts that you regularly engage in, or patterns, is your desire, think about this question, is your desire, I want to make peace? Or is your desire, I want to show them they're wrong? I want them to stop. I want them to see that I'm right. I want them to confess and own up to what they've done. I'm not saying any of those are totally off base, but is your main desire, I want to make peace. That is honor. That is what wisdom is. Now, Proverbs on this verse specifically, and really and most of it throughout, doesn't actually give you a bunch of how-tos on how to do that. Jesus does. And if you know Jesus' wisdom on how to make peace, 
he says all sorts of great things. One of them is that if you want to make peace, what do you have to do? First, you have to get the log out of your own eye. So you can't keep looking at everybody's faults, which is similar to what we already talked about. You can't keep seeing everything that everybody else did wrong. You have to start with yourself and say, what have I brought to the situation? Have I been just offendable, easily offendable? Have I caused some damage? What have I done? That's almost never where we start. Oftentimes when I talk to people about their conflicts, it's, well, this will never change. This situation will never change. I've tried everything. What have you tried? Well, I've tried showing them that they did this. I tried talking to them about this. Have you tried going to them and saying, here's what I've done against you? No. They have way more things. Okay, but Jesus says, start here. Get the log out of your own eye. If you want to end the dispute, which Proverbs says is the honorable thing. If you want to end a dispute, Jesus says the way to do that is we start with removing the log from our eye. And then we go to the person and help them. The same author I showed you, Ken Sandy, he says that when we go to someone to make a confession, that these seven A's are how you make a confession. That you address everyone involved. So not just, it might have affected this person, but it might have also affected multiple people. You avoid if, but, and maybe. You're not trying to excuse anything. If I hurt you, maybe what I did was wrong. I did this, but... You did this. We admit specifically what we've done. We don't just kind of generally speak, hey, sorry that things didn't go great. We say, here is what I did in my attitude. Here is what I did in my actions. I would say you add to that Bible words, meaning I lied against you. I was rude. I was harsh. I was deceptive. I was impatient. You actually speak about things the way the Bible speaks to them and names them. You acknowledge the hurt. I'm sorry that I did this. I bet that that created sorrow in you. I bet that that was frustrating. I can see how that would, you acknowledge how what you've done can cause pain. And you accept the consequences. If you steal something from someone, you don't just say, I'm sorry that I stole $500 from you. You also say, here's $500. You accept the consequences of what you've done. Sometimes that might mean that the relationship has changed. It, you can say, I am sorry, and what I did was wrong, but you also understand, I, I may have changed this relationship, at least for a while. You alter your behavior, which means you actually seek to change. You don't just say, I'm sorry that I did this. You say, I'm sorry I did this, and I am going to work on this. I'm committed to changing this. And you ask for forgiveness. You actually humble yourself and say, will you forgive me? Not just, I'm sorry, but will you forgive me? This is helpful parents, by the way, we teach our kids the same thing. Of this is, you don't just say, I'm sorry, it's okay. I'm sorry, it's okay. It's not okay. What you did was wrong and you're an evil little sinner. And I'm sorry doesn't mean anything. That's just a declaration of your feelings. You say, I'm sorry. Here's what I did. I understand the hurt of that. I'm willing to accept the consequences. Will you forgive me? I teach the same thing in, in marriage counseling. This is how we approach one another. So, we seek to end the dispute. Have you tried that? If there's, a, if there's a conflict that you have, have you tried, I'm gonna get the log out of my eye and go to them and end the dispute? <clears throat> I haven't preached for a while, so I uh, overloaded my slides, so I'm gonna skip uh, a couple of these. But 
or maybe it's that uh, that's just normal. But <clears throat> the next one is the final one, which is that we seek to forgive. And Proverbs says it in the opposite, but it says, don't say, I'll do to him what he did to me. I'll repay the man for what he has done. Don't say that. Instead, what it implies is forgive. And what this says is someone actually has done something to you, right? Somebody has actually caused some damage. Something has, uh, when it says, I'll repay the man, a lot of times the Bible talks about sin in that way, that a debt has been incurred, which means someone has actually harmed you. They actually have legitimately done something against you. But don't say, I'll repay them. Forgive. What that assumes is that sin will be done to you. People will hurt you. People will wrong you. And we can forgive. We can forgive them. We don't have to repay them. We don't have to repay them by actually getting them back, but we also don't have to repay them by just making them feel bad. Sometimes that's the way we repay people. Rarely is it that someone does something to you and you just go, I'm going to do it right back to you. Someone bumps into you and you bump into them or someone kind of hurts your feelings and so you try to find a way to do the exact same thing. It's usually we try to repay people in other ways. By giving them the cold shoulder, by... Um, just kind of making them feel really bad about it. There's other ways to repay someone. The proverb says, forgive. What Ken Sandy says, again, who very helpful if you uh, want to read more on this, I encourage you to Google him. He says, I, forgiveness makes these four promises. I will not dwell on this incident. You're not gonna keep replaying it in your mind. I will not bring this up and use it against you. I will not talk to others about this. And I won't allow this to stand between us or hinder our relationship. Four promises that forgiveness makes. If we do that, we're well on the way to the wisdom that Proverbs gives. What would happen if we begin with God, if we give grace, if we disengage when we need to, and if we seek reconciliation, make peace, and if we forgive? What would happen? Wouldn't our relationships be different? Wouldn't they be transformed? Final thing Proverbs says is the way that we live with this, how we have it, how we can have the power to do this, and it just goes back to the verse that I already gave us, which is that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, the knowledge of the Holy One, understanding. So let me just tie this all up for us. How we live with this wisdom is, what does it mean to know God? Well, it means, don't you see how he has been gracious to you? Don't you see how he's covered your offenses? Don't you see how he promotes love with you? See, the more that you know him, the more you're changed to be able to interact with other people that way. Do you know that God isn't just going around with a checklist saying, you did that wrong, you did that wrong, you did that wrong, you did that wrong, that wrong, that wrong, that wrong, that wrong, that wrong. Oh, I'm just, that's just your actions. Now let me do thoughts. That wrong, that wrong, that wrong, that wrong, that wrong. Motives. Like God doesn't do that. God sees it all, yeah. But God is putting even front and center grace. He's choosing to look at us with grace. Think about even how the Holy Spirit works in our life. For those of you that are Christians, one of the things the Holy Spirit does is convicts us of our sin. But I'm telling you, if the Holy Spirit decided to say, I'm just going to tell you all of your sin right now, it would crush you like a cartoon anvil thing. You know, It would <laughs> acme, just you would be splat. That'd be it. 
But what he does is say, I'm going to bring this up to you. What about all the other stuff? There's a sense of concealing that's being done. A sense of overlooking that's being done. God promotes love with us. When you know that that's who he is, it begins to change us to operate with others that way. God seeks reconciliation to end disputes with us in the most ultimate way. Jesus came to earth and didn't say, when you figure out this dispute between us, let's get it solved. He came and ended it. God forgives us of every sin, of every conflict, of everything that we've done, thought, word, deed. He forgives. How did he do all that? The flood. The flood of conflict that we have created between us and God. Jesus took the flood of God's wrath on the cross for us. He drank, the Bible says, the cup of God's wrath, or we could say the flood of God's wrath. All of the righteous wrath of God that we justly deserve for all of our sins, Jesus stood and took the flood on the cross so that we could be saved, so that we could have right relationship with him, so that we could enjoy peace with him, so we could enjoy reconciled relationship with him. When we take communion, that's what we're remembering. We're remembering that Jesus took the flood of God's wrath for us, that his body was broken and his blood was shed to bring us peace with God. If you didn't get a little communion cup on the way in and you're a Christian, then you can grab one of those. As we take communion, we are remembering. We have peace with him. And the more that we know him, the more that we see him, the more that we fear and revere who he is and what he's done for us, our relationships can change. So do you have conflict? Is there patterns or big things? Even as you take communion, take a moment and pray. Maybe even in your heart, right now, make a commitment to forgive. Make a commitment to make peace with somebody. Ask God to help you look at others graciously promoting love. And thank him for how he's done all of that to us. I will be in the back if anyone would like prayer for healing or for conflict in your life or for any other thing. Father, I thank you for your grace. I thank you that you forgive. I thank you that though we are sinners and we sin in multiple ways, we sin against one another in conflict and we sin in all sorts of other things, but you made peace by the blood of the cross. You took the flood of wrath that we deserved and took it upon yourself to give us instead a flood of love and grace. Thank you for this, Jesus. I pray that you would help to make us a people that are gracious and peaceful towards one another. In your name, Jesus.